Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome to Talking Tudors, episode 175 and the eighth instalment of all things 16th century women. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. Throughout August and September, we've been exploring the lives of 16th century women through a series of podcast episodes here on Talking Tudors and video lectures over on my YouTube channel. While all the content is free, I ask that you consider supporting the event by becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Visit patreon.com slash talkingtudors for more information. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll have access to patron-only monthly giveaways. September's prize is a one-year subscription to Tudor Places magazine. You can find out more about them at tudorplaces.com. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. On the weekend of the 17th and 18th of September, I'll be chatting to historian, novelist and screenwriter Robin Maxwell about her books and her work. Head to Patreon for all the details. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I would love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag #ILoveTalkingTudors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about Aztec Mexica women is Dr. Caroline Dodds-Panic. Dr. Pennock is Senior Lecturer in International History at the University of Sheffield, specialising in Mesoamerica and the Atlantic world. She's the UK's only Aztec historian, and her first book, Bonds of Blood, Gender, Life Cycle and Sacrifice in Aztec Culture, won the Royal Historical Society's Gladstone Prize for 2008. Caroline's new book on Savage Shores, How Indigenous Americans Discovered Europe, is a groundbreaking history of how native peoples from the Americas crossed the Atlantic and transformed the world after 1492. This will be published in January 2023. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales. <laughs> Thank you. 
welcome to Talking Tudors and all things 16th century women. Caroline, please introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about you and your background. Hi, my name is Caroline Dodds-Pennock. I'm a senior lecturer in international history at the University of Sheffield in the UK. And I know uh, international history is a term so vague as to mean almost nothing. Um, what I actually work on is Indigenous, Mesoamerican and Atlantic world histories. I started as an Aztec historian or more properly perhaps a Mexica historian. That's what they would have called themselves and have since worked into looking at Indigenous people in the Atlantic world and travellers to Europe in the 16th century. That's what my book that's just coming out is about. Wonderful. How exciting. Now, I have actually, when I was doing a little bit of research for this particular episode, I've seen you often referred to as the UK's only Aztec or Mexica, Aztec Mexica historian. So when did you first become interested in this particular subject? So it's actually not a very interesting story about how I became interested in Aztec history. Uh, the truth is that I was fascinated by history when I was young. And at some point, I really started to um, recognize how interesting Aztec history is. It's a, a period of history that people think they're very familiar with, but actually don't know that much about. They just know stereotypes about it. And the Aztecs, and I think it is okay to call them the Aztecs just so people know who we're talking about, but it is also important to recognize they would have called themselves the Mexica or the Tenocha, the people of Tenochtitlan. But this is a culture that is so much more sophisticated and interesting than people think, so much more diverse and also is contemporary, as you know, because I'm on the podcast, contemporary with the Tudors as well as other dynasties. And people think of them, I think, as a very ancient culture. They tend to pigeonhole them with cultures like the Egyptians, but actually they're really quite modern. And so when the Spanish invade, you get this moment of, of a European culture we think we're very familiar with meeting a society that we think is very unfamiliar. And for me, that was fascinating as a child. But I don't have a grand moment of revelation. I just really liked history when I was young. Awesome. And and so introduce us, Caroline, to, to the people that we're talking to, the people that we often refer to today as the Aztecs. So, you know, where, where do they live? You've told us the time period, just a little bit about them. The people we're talking about when we refer to them as the Aztecs are actually the people of the city of Tenochtitlan, which is on the site of what is now Mexico City, downtown Mexico City, uh, in the Valley of Mexico. They settle there in the early 14th century, but actually only come to power in the early 15th century. So they're only the, the culture that we recognize, the big kind of built up, centralized society for about a hundred years before the Spanish arrive. It, it's not a very long lasting empire and not obviously through its own devices, but because of invasion, they would probably have called themselves the Tenocha, the people of Tenochtitlan, or the Mexica, um, the, the people of Mexico. Now, there's some slight hedging here because while I am focusing on the city of Tenochtitlan, and this is the dominant culture in the valley for that hundred years, there are also lots of other civilizations in this area. Even on the island, because Tenochtitlan actually was a big island city at that time, Mexico City now, they've reclaimed all the land from the lake, but it was a big, it was an island city. And there were actually two cities on the island, Tenochtitlan and Tlatelolco. So it's not even a single culture in that urban center. So we have to recognize that while we, we think about this one civilization, there are actually lots of competing and collaborating cities and states in that central region of Mexico too. Yeah, that's so interesting. And and in terms of the civilization or, or society, basically, how is it organized? Is it like a class system like we recognize in, you know, Tudor England or is it something else? It is quite hierarchical. Um, so at the top 
of the civilization, you actually have, people tend to focus on the Tlatawani, a word that means speaker. I would tend to translate it as ruler, though it's often translated as emperor or king, but I think ruler doesn't give it the European assumptions. So the Tlatawani or ruler is at the head. And that's the person that most people are familiar with. Uh, Moctezuma II, who you may have heard of as Montezuma, who Cortes meets, he was the Tlatoami. But you actually have a ruling dyad, two people at the top of the culture. There's another ruler called the Siwakwatl, the woman snake, who is a man, but dresses as a woman and is represented as a woman within the ritual and within the ceremonial occasions. So you actually have a male-female symbolic pairing at the top of Tenochtitlan, which is fascinating. Um, There's a lot of debate about their different roles, but my view is that broadly the Tlatoani deal, the male figure deals with political and external affairs, and the Siwakwatl, the woman snake, deals with Uh, domestic affairs to a greater degree. Below that, you have the two ranks of nobility, the tekutli, who it's a word that's usually translated as lords, and the pili, who are the nobility. Now, the tekutli are the high nobility, and this is really interesting and important, I think. It may sound like I'm going into too much detail, but the reason I want to say it is that Aztec society is a fascinating combination of status and birth and ability. So, Broadly, you have the nobility and then the commoners, the Masawaltin, but a commoner can become a pili, the the nobles, the lower class of the the nobility, through extraordinary achievements as a priest or in warfare, or even as a gardener. A gardener who is singled out once is, is elevated, but they can never become the tekutli, who are the high lords. But all sons of Tekutli high lords are born as Pili, and they can only achieve high lord statusship by their own achievements. So you don't have primogenitor when a ruler dies. They decide which of the male relatives, or very occasionally in some other cities, a female relative, it seems, which of the male relatives is the most competent. So sometimes you have a younger son succeeding or a brother to the throne. Uh, and that does produce, of course, uh, friction <laughs> within the, the the power structure. Apart from that, you then have the, the Masawaltin, who are commas, who are craftspeople. They are farmers in the majority. And you also have a group sort of off to one side called the Pochteca, the merchants. Now, because Aztec society is very not keen on the idea of visible wealth personal wealth it's it there it's all about communal ownership a lot of it the Masawaltin have to kind of keep secret their wealth so they're not allowed to show their their money or their display and they um hold feasts to sort of redistribute wealth they're a kind of secretive group who it seems even maybe had some of their own law courts and things so you have broadly a, a, a power pyramid and then there are enslaved people and a group called the Tlalbaital, the Hand of the Earth, which are a bit mysterious. They may have been the original inhabitants of the region at the bottom. Slavery is not exactly the same as we would understand it. You can marry, you have a, a lot more rights, but but obviously they're outside of that citizenship structure. So it, it's very hierarchical, but also has the ability for social mobility within it. The other main organising principle, I would say, is gender. Men and women have very distinctive, very cooperative, but very separate roles within the society. Both are valued, but they are not valued for doing the same things ordinarily. So women have a lot of the marks of what we would consider as as rights. They can inherit, 
power and property. You can get a divorce. You're not allowed to beat your wife, things like that. But then you do have polygamy and men hold most of the great offices although women also hold important jobs like doctors and and marketplace overseers things like that wonderful that's so fascinating and i'd love to hear a little bit more about how women were actually viewed and what beliefs existed um, about them in this culture that is a big question it is Um, (laughs) there is there's a lot of debate i should say about the role of women in Aztec culture. It used to be that for a long time, people thought this was a strictly traditional patriarchal society because it looks like a warrior culture in which men dominate the political offices. But when you dig down a little bit more, as I said, there are things that tend against that. The fact that you have a ruling male-female dyad in in symbol, for example, and gods and goddesses are often paired like that. You have male and female aspects. The fact that women, as I said, have tangible rights to inherit, to work land. Uh, There isn't any sense in which they're legal minors to men. They are very respected. Uh, If anything, a little bit feared. They tend to do domestic roles but I would argue and and have argued in print that uh, that domestic sphere is more in the political sense than it is the kind of strictly home-based sense so women hold important roles within the community but they don't tend to travel abroad or be involved in uh, national politics for example though there are a few exceptions elite women now where men are tend to be involved in warfare and in politics, as I said, uh, crafts are done by both. Uh, the men tend to hold the public speaking roles, if that makes sense. The, they're the, the, they would be considered probably the heads of families. But in a very tangible sense, the domestic space is the woman's space. This isn't like the when we talk about separate spheres in the Victorian era, but we mean the man is in charge and the woman is confined to the domestic space. We mean that she has the rights of it. So when a man and a woman get married... And it's an incredible literal tying of the knot. There's all these mirrored rituals and then they tie their capes together. It's and it's a very balanced uh, ceremony. The woman is given four cotton capes, which are uh, the currency, a, a large piece of currency to set up the household. So the woman deals with the household finances. And so you have this what I would call a complementary system of gender, where you have two separate but balanced equal spheres. There have been some people, though, who have argued that it is patriarchal nonetheless, and it does have some aspects that are patriarchal. And it also, in the metaphysical sphere, can seem like gender is a little bit more fluid at times and, and less fixed than that. So some people have argued that for that fluidity in everyday life a bit more than I'm doing because of the nature of the sources that we have which are very very difficult and almost exclusively produced after the arrival of the Spanish it's really hard to be conclusive about it we can only speculate really yes and I was just thinking in terms of the and I I apologize I forget the exact title the the head sort of male ruler the Tlatuani yes would he have a, a spouse or a wife for supporting him in some way yes he would have probably multiple wives But what's important, I don't know why I said probably he definitely had multiple wives, (laughs) but what's important is that he had only one primary wife. You could only go through the marriage ritual with one woman. And she was considered the main, what's often translated as queen, but it's not really queen, female lord. And 
in a she it is from her that bl uh, royal blood descends if that makes sense so and sometimes there are even cases actually of that when the main wife can't have a baby of one of the children of another wife being laid with her as if she was giving birth to it so that she, it's kind of adopted into the royal line so that pairing of one man and one woman remains important at the highest levels, even though polygamy is the, the norm amongst the nobility and seems to become very, very emphasized in the later years of Aztec rule. Moctezuma goes to great efforts to emphasize his importance, his um, power, and part of that is having many, many wives and many, many children. They're sometimes called concubines, but I don't think that word really captures it. They are wives, but they are not the, the primary wife. And the fascinating thing is that the royal blood, as opposed to noble blood in the Aztec line, comes from the, the female side. They're, so when the Aztecs migrate to the Valley of Mexico and they settle there, they, they have lords among their group, but they don't have any rulers, any what we would see as royalty. And so they intermarry with the local royalty. And Susan Gillespie has argued that every three generations, and of course, because we only have about 100 years to work with, you can't see whether the pattern would have carried on. But every three generations in the time period that we have, they marry a royal woman again from a local group. And she's argued that it's a sort of renewal of the royal blood, which is really interesting. So I find it fascinating that the royalty is coming from the woman's side, not from the man's. You very definitely don't have primogenitor here. Yeah, that is really interesting. And and Caroline, tell us a little bit about this association between women and disorder. Oh, yes. I've been kind of emphasising women as, as bearers of power, but actually there's another side to this. And I suppose it's it's not unusual. In many societies, men are associated with culture and women with nature and Aztec women very definitely are associated with nature in a very important and very very tangible sense and that makes them dangerous and this is a uh, is an idea that's familiar from other civilizations you know the idea that women access the forces of childbirth can make them powerful and also feared in some cultures but it happens very tangibly in Aztec culture what what is believed is that when women give birth they are literally imbued with the body of the earth goddess, of with her power at the moment that they're giving birth. And if you die during childbirth, your body re remains imbued with that power. So young warriors would try and steal pieces of the body to carry into battle because they believe that the power was stuck there because she died during childbirth. So childbirth gives women access to forces that are considered both very creative and important, but also potentially dangerous and destructive. Now, one of the problems that we have, though, is that, as I mentioned, all the sources are tangled up with Spanish perceptions, because when the Spanish arrive, they destroy almost all the indigenous records. The Aztecs are a, a literate culture. It's a literate pictog it's a pictographic culture, but they have huge numbers of records, including things like marriage contracts. And they're all destroyed uh, by the Spanish who fear that they're religious documents. And so after the conquest, the first fervor of the conquest, some missionaries realise that perhaps they've made a mistake, that it's hard to understand this society. So they asked them to recreate some of these documents, mostly religious and social documents. And so we have a few from after the conquest that are pictographic. But most of what we're working with is records by Spaniards about Aztec culture. And so the problem is that all the ideas about gender get tangled up with Spanish ideas about gender. Now, the reason that I think we can make a 
a strong case for the picture I'm arguing for, which is that Aztec women are both feared and really tangibly respected and believed to be important, is that it seems to be an image that I can't imagine the Spanish imposing. I can imagine them praising it, which they do at some times and seeing it as familiar. And I can imagine them condemning it because of course, with, as, with human sacrifice and the desire to justify the conquest, they very often condemn Aztec culture. But this idea of women as important and powerful and holding their own sphere of influence seems really difficult to imagine the Spanish imposing or imagining for themselves. That said, when we deal with things like the idea of women in disorder, in some of the sources you see for example, talk about gossip and women, women's the wrong words being used at the wrong time, being dangerous. And that feels like a, a Spanish thing, but it, it also feels like an Aztec thing because they too are a very polite, controlled culture. They believe in strong etiquette and they even have two forms of the language, the everyday form and then the courtly form, the, the polite elite form of the language. So when Cortez arrives, Moctezuma says things to him like, you know, my kingdom is yours, but it's just a, it's, it's a ritual welcome, you know, mi casa es su casa, this kind of yeah. thing. Even when they're preparing for war, they're very polite to each other. So the idea of language as, as being something that needs to be controlled and used in the right way, actually it can be seen as coherent with Aztec culture too. So it's, you're always thinking, is this being imposed? Is this something real? You know, what, how far can I take this? So every time you say anything about Aztec society, you end up hedging. But women, it do it does seem have this very strong association with nature, which gives them influence and importance, but also means that, that a degree of control and a degree of hedging of that power, of confinement of that power is required, because otherwise it could spill over and be dangerous. You've talked already a little bit about the some of the roles that women might might take up in their society, but maybe can you talk a little bit more about that? And if I was an Aztec woman, what sort of things would I be aspiring to? What kind of life would I want? So it's kind of interesting because aspiration is a difficult thing to talk about because we have so few individual testimonies from this period. What we know is that the, uh, what the ideal Aztec woman is supposed to aspire to, which is to be uh, a, a mother and to run a successful household, to raise her children well, to do to perform all the necessary religious rituals when her husband is away at war. Women are really important in spirituality. So when the men are away at war, they have to conduct all these rituals that mean the men will be successful. You know, they're seen as very powerful and their control of the domestic space. If you don't do the right things when you're cooking, you could bring about cosmological danger, for example. So it, it's every day an Aztec woman would be expected to be aware all the time of being part of this a bigger cosmos that she's part of and what you would aspire to I think would depend very heavily on who you were born as so the gender roles do translate very heavily across classes for want of a better word social statuses is probably better classes a bit Marxist a bit modern so all women are expected to be good cooks in charge of the household economy and to do sweeping, which was a ritual act as well as a cleaning act. It's to do with keeping out tlatzoli, which is often translated as sin, but actually means more like dirt or stuff out of place. So when you're sweeping, you're sweeping away spiritual uncleanliness as well as literal uncleanliness. But then a lot of women 
would also have been craftspeople. You have women who are jewelers. Weaving was fundamental to women's identity. And weaving is not just a craft uh, and something that you can sell. Weaving is in and of itself an economic act because cotton and cloth is one of the most important currency measures. So when you're weaving a, a, a cape, you are literally making money. Some people have made the case that this is one of the reasons for polygyny at higher levels is that if you have more wives, you make more, I was going to say money, but it's not money, uh, more more credit um, because it's a barter economy. It's, an ex it's not a cash-based economy. Women also would have been midwives who are very, very influential. They are important religious and spiritual figures uh, as well as medical figures. There are female doctors, I mentioned that there are marketplace overseers, and that is more important than it sounds because they provision the army. So actually have quite strong, they're not just responsible for ensuring that everything is fair in the market, fair prices are charged, good quality goods, you know, who goes where, all these things. It's a bit, it's a huge job. The marketplace at Tlatelolco in the Twin City, they said maybe 60,000 people passed through that a day on some days. It's enormous. So it's a big job managing the marketplace, but also they provision the army. So they're given a lot of practical power. So what you aspire to do would depend, I think, quite heavily on who you're born as. So some noble women, there are strategic marriages in this civilization, just like there are in others. But you also get women who occasionally become regents, who are involved in politics, who are given their own diplomatic briefs almost. They very frequently would be involved in the local district management. So you have communal grain stores and local courts and women would be looked to as elders and organizers in, in local communities. Yeah, it really depends very heavily. There, I mean, there's there's some other stuff that is less positive in a modern sense, but quite funny. We have these wonderful speeches called the Hue Hue Tlatoli, which are the words of the elders or, or the ancient word. And they're ritual speeches given at important moments in people's lives. And they say things like, you know, you should respect your elders and here's what's going to be expected of you when you're married. And one of them says, you, you need to jump at your jumping place so you don't become an inflated fat person, <laughs> which is just a, a really fascinating little snippet of everyday life into someone's... Absolutely. You should stay thin. Don't let yourself get. But uh, but this is a culture in which energy and effectiveness is really important. It's all about being useful. So older people, while respected, don't tend to hold the main offices. And you're allowed to get drunk if you're oh. old. Oh, if you have old. grandchildren and you're old, you're allowed to get drunk. <laughs> Nobody else is allowed to get drunk except on ritual occasions. And it's you can argue that it's a reward for them. Right. Yeah years of service but it's also that it doesn't matter that much if old people get drunk because they're not supposed to be doing something useful <laughs> um, it is a culture where usefulness and that might be part of why they're saying don't you know get fat but it, it's yeah. a bit of a from a modern perspective you go oh dear that's not but but at the same time as a, a cultural historian you go oh wow that's an amazing little snippet uh, a snapshot into people's lives the women sound incredibly skilled and intelligent and practical in terms of education were there limits placed on women's education? So there are limits, but one of the most amazing and important things I think about Aztec culture is that they have universal education for boys and girls. Wow. It is the amazing. only pre-modern civilization that I know of that has universal education. The education is different. So boys go to either the Kalmakat, which is the priestly house, or to the Telpochali, which is the warrior house. Uh, to learn those professions. It, it seems that some noble boys may have gone to both. 
and the age that you go is not very, very clear. Then it seems there were craft schools, which are not well referred to, um, that both boys and girls may well have attended. They may have been district based. You know, if you lived in the in the lapidary, the kind of jewel making district, you probably went there. Those aren't well talked about. And people tend to talk about the Kalmakak and the Tabakali and boys education and being trained up to be warriors and priests and all these things. But then you have this other school called the Kuikakali, which translates as the House of Song where both boys and girls go as teenagers for maybe two, three years, where they learn the religion, rhetoric, songs, histories, all of the things that help them understand why their culture is the way that it is. So this is after practical education. And the amazing thing is that it seems that boys are educated and cared for by men, and girls are educated and cared for by women. So women are relieved after weaning of that sole burden of childcare as well that exists in so many cultures. Boys are, would learn fishing and, and hunting and so on from the fathers, and the daughter would learn from the mother. If they get divorced, the sons go with the father and the daughters go with the mother. So it's there's clear there's really interesting education. And th so there's that practical education. But then after that, when they're teenagers, they go for this formal education. And this is one of the things I think is so important to understand as tech society. It is not like in Europe at that time where you go to church and everything's happening in Latin and the mystery is part of the point. You're not supposed to understand everything that's going on and, it, and it's all very uh, spiritual and mysterious. Aztec children are supposed to know why people are being sacrificed, why the religion is the way it is, what their responsibilities are, how to talk, what their history is. And, and it's a history that has been deliberately rewritten in the 1430s to kind of promote their importance in the valley. They literally burn all the records and start again, like this is our history, in order to promote themselves. So that education is really important. But then you also, we know they also sing and dance. So it's probably a time for young people to find partners as well, because it's about the time they would be starting to think of getting married. So there's a, there's a social function as well. But universal education for boys and girls at every level, which is just fascinating. That's unbelievable. Amazing. I didn't know that, that it's really interesting. And you mentioned sacrifice there, Caroline. So I want to talk to you a little bit about the role that human sacrifice plays in life for the Aztec people. And how were women in particular involved in this ritualized violence? Well, that is something that I could give an hour long lecture <laughs> you could. about and not even touch on half of it. I have, in fact, given hour long lectures on the, the question of women and gender and sacrifice. So I will try not to, to be quite as long as that. But the sacrifice comes from, although as with all Aztec things, some people have made different arguments, but it seems that sacrifice comes from the idea of a debt that the Aztecs have to their gods. So there are many myths which show the Aztec gods letting blood from themselves in order to create humanity, or ripping themselves into pieces to create the earth, and which then requires being fed by blood in order not to for the world not to end. Essentially, it's about perpetuating the world. They believe that the world will come to an end if they don't feed the sun and other gods with blood and hearts. It's, it's about energy tonalia kind of spirit now the male role in this is very very clear they have to take captives for sacrifice and they are the priests who conduct the sacrifices and there's no sense in aztec culture that that's an easy thing to do boys are taken away from their homes when they are maybe six or seven and taken to be trained up to be sacrificial priests and it feels like nothing so much as a military training where you have to 
do lots of things over and over again exactly perfectly and if you get any of them wrong you know you're cut is you have to be able to do exactly what you're being told without sleep without food and the the speeches given to young boys when they go to the Kalmakak the priestly school are very don't look back to your family that part of your life is gone it's quite clear that being a priest is, is not an easy thing you're being trained up to do it it's quite alienating really the training now women's role is a little bit more opaque when we men are kind of glorified through sacrifice they gain status they gain both as victims and as so warriors are supposed to idealize the idea of becoming a sacrificial victim that's the ultimate death because you would go then and gain a privileged afterlife women get a privileged afterlife by the way this i won't go into this now but if they die in childbirth these are parallel afterlives now women's role becomes clearer when you look at victims of sacrifice so the i've broke down what what male and female victims where we can tell the gender are associated with and male victims tend to be associated with all kinds of stuff basically where female victims it's always about nature these are always themes that are related to the earth gods and it's to do with again that association between women and the earth so women are important there they witness sacrifice they're part of the festivals around sacrifice and they are victims in sacrifice but they're never sacrificial priests one interesting thing perhaps is that afterlife that i mentioned where men go off to become so what happens is first of all the men become companions of the sun for four years these are the men who die in battle or in child or in a sacrifice they accompany the sun to its zenith and women who died in childbirth accompany it to its setting and that seems like a complete parallel until you look at what they're actually doing which is men raising and heralding the sun and it's women handing the sun into the hands of the land of the dead under the earth where it may or may not fight its way through and arise victorious in the morning the most interesting thing is what happens afterwards though men go off to become hummingbirds and butterflies who dance in the sun and live drunk is the kind of the way it's talked about so they get this beautiful blissful oblivion women become goddesses women who've died in childbirth but they're kind of evil, dark goddesses. So they become the siwatete, or the women gods who uh, live at the crossroads and vest ill will on people, and who will turn at the end of time into the tsitsimime, a word that tends to be translated as devil women, but that's a very Spanish way of translating it, but there isn't really another good translation, who are kind of all claws and skulls, and they will devour humanity at the end of time, because the Aztecs believe we live in a cyclical universe and that we are in the fifth age and we're just waiting to see when the end comes so women in sacrifice sort of almost are the ultimate end if if sacrifice doesn't take place women are the devourers they are the earth that will devour humanity in in the end but sacrifice in in its most obvious if you break it down as a social political thing is mostly for men except uh, in in the role of victims I can totally understand why you said you could talk about it for hours because I've just got like a million questions that have popped into my head, but I'm going to try not to divert the conversation too much. But I do just want to ask, were the sacrificial victims ever, is there evidence to suggest they were kind of willing participants? That's very hard because theoretically they were willing. So we're not just, people tend to talk about the Aztecs taking all these victims, but actually they forget that other cities in the valley also have the same belief system and though not on the same scale are capturing Aztecs to take people from Tenochtitlan to take them off to their cities and sacrifice them so you're supposed to idealize this death because everybody else anybody who doesn't die either in sacrifice or in childbirth or battle or there are a couple of other ways to avoid 
the main afterlife like being drowned you go off to a watery afterlife things like that but mo most people go to a place called Mictlan which is the land of the dead which is not hell but it is a sort of dark damp place of misery under the earth it's not very nice so trying to avoid that is a, a big thing and so I ideally in theory warriors would go voluntarily to their deaths they would herald the gods and their city and be willing victims the reality is that what little evidence we have suggests that some people did that and other people were dragged kicking and screaming and that sounds very very likely it's one thing to idealize a kind of death and another to go through with it in that way and and we see that i mean people dying for religion is not only a pre-modern thing people kill themselves now for religion and kill other people for religion i think for me the closest equivalent in the in the ideology is martyrdom so you're you're dying for your religion for your belief to attain a privileged afterlife you go to a, a privileged afterlife so martyrdom is for me the closest parallel in the way it's supposed to be seen whether everybody who actually was sacrificed Sort of like that is a very different question because women and children are sacrificed too. There are a handful of cases where it seems quite clear that the person chose to be sacrificed. So one guy, for example, who is captured from another city and then becomes an Aztec warrior and has a, a great career with them, but becomes really disillusioned and concerned that he didn't die the warrior's death. And so he asks to be sacrificed or else pushes himself into a situation which is essentially like sacrifice, depending on which narrative you read. So there are a few cases, but it's it's really hard to tell. Okay. And just wondering when you were doing all your all your research, did you come across, given the 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 sort of lack of sources, I suppose, or sources, you know, pre-Spanish invasion, did you come across any individual Aztec women? Any information about individual people, or is it more just a, a broader sense of women in general? The sources tend to be about women in general. They're very homogenizing. So men did this, women did this, craftspeople did this, children do this. We have a few accounts about elite women who tend to be mythologized in the way that they're written about so the the histories because the history is written as a cyclical cyclical history sorry tends to evoke particular past women and past events so when you're hearing about one person you're not just hearing about them you're hearing about a whole bundle of associations with them but you do get a few accounts of elite women and then when the spanish arrive we have some individual women who kind of come to the fore and then we have records obviously from after the conquest of surviving women who are descendants of the Aztecs or of other peoples of the valley um, who become prominent. Many of them are people we would call Nahua rather than Aztecs, so na meaning Nahuatl speaking. So the Aztecs are Nahuatl speaking, but so are many other people. Uh, including some of their enemies. So we often start to talk about Nahua people after the conquest because they get a bit homogenized by the Spanish and, and Tenochtitlan as a, as a power center, as an indigenous power center collapses to a large degree. That said, there are millions of descendants of indigenous people today and of Aztecs today. There are perhaps a million, around a million Nahuatl speakers in Mexico today. So we, of course, have records of some of their descendants, particularly people like Isabel Moctezuma, who is the daughter of Moctezuma and is 
becomes intermarried with the Spanish. She is she's taken into a certainly her first marriage looks like it was not a very consensual uh, relationship. But these women become part of great dynasties and then have a lot of children um, and in some cases have surviving descendants today uh, as well. So while we're on the topic of descendants and and women that came after um, the Aztecs, so I know you're working on Indigenous travellers to Europe. So are any of those women descendants of the Aztec women? Yes, some of them are. So I have a book coming out in January, which is super exciting, uh, called On Savage Shores, How Indigenous Americans Discovered Europe. And that started out actually as a project about Mexican people from what we think was Mexico today, indigenous peoples traveling to Spain. And then it became this much bigger project, which covers people from the Inuit to the Tupinamba and traveling to places all over Europe. But the the starting point and a lot of what I was really interested in was the descendants of the Aztecs, or in some cases, Aztecs themselves, because the, the first travelers are from the very beginning. So from the first time Columbus returns from the Americas, he brings indigenous people with him. And when Cortes arrives in 1519, he sends back emissaries to Spain and he sends Totonac people with them. So you have indigenous Mexicans in Europe from the very beginning. And there is one of those Totonac people, at least, is a woman who's often seen as a wife, but is could be a diplomat in her own right. We don't know. The trouble is that the majority of those travellers are men often brought as enslaved people. So there there are some women who are enslaved as well, but the most of the recorded names are of men, uh, diplomats, entertainers, emissaries sent to court. There is a group that comes with Cortes in 1528 when he first returns to Spain after the conquest. And he goes to court determined to impress Charles V. And everybody they talk about in the sources is a man. The entertainers, the nobles, there's a big group of nobles Indigenous nobles go with him, determined to push their own cases at that court. But then there is a costume book drawn by a man called Christoph Weiditz, who was a, a medal maker who happened to be at court. It was, an unpub- it was it was unpublished. He drew lots of different people from all across Europe and North Africa. He drew Cortez among them, but he also drew Indigenous people. And while they're not the perfect renditions they cannot be direct because they they contain things that those people simply wouldn't have worn for example they're very definitely inspired by those people at court and he says that they are of the people who traveled to court and one of them is a woman he draws a picture of an aztec woman now the trouble is that's the only record we have of a woman being in that group and the outfit she's wearing which is a very impressive feather dress cape sort of thing she would never have worn there's absolutely no way she would have turned up wearing that unless they had dressed her to fit some expectation. So is her outfit imagined or is she entirely imagined? Because in most cases, he wanted a man and a woman from each group he's representing. We don't know. But he claims in the the, the gloss in the book says that this was the, the one woman who came with the group. And, and it is possible. And then you have descendants of all kinds of indigenous people who, who come in Extremadura in Western Spain, you actually have a whole cluster of descendants of the Incas. First, one of an Inca princess comes and settles there, Anusta, um, and she and her descendants uh, become really important in and around this Western part of Spain. But you don't tend to think of them as being there. And so, you, you yes, you, you have these people, but women are much harder to trace, which is why, even though we're talking about the Aztecs, I mentioned the Inca Anusta, because we know an awful lot about 
Francisca Pizarro, who is a descendant of the conquistadors, but also a descendant of the Inca rulers. And she is exiled to Spain because she's considered to be too powerful, too important. If she hangs around, people might try and use her to play power games in Peru. So she is exiled to Spain. And there are lots and lots of these travellers who must have women among them. There are Mexican, which I'm putting in inverted commas, which the audience can't see, there are some Mexican women who go, who very likely are Aztec or from nearby, who, for example, go as dependents of Spaniards. Very often Spaniards have women mistresses, occasionally wives in the Americas. They don't often bring them back, but in some cases they do, and then they appear in the travel records, and we know a little bit about their lives. There are some people who are enslaved, and they appear in the records after 1542 when indigenous slavery is abolished, and so you see them appear appealing for their freedom. They aren't all what we would call Aztec, and frequently we don't know their precise origin that's the trouble we just know because they're labeled in the sources as india indian women so but we some of them must have been descendants of the Nahuas, descendants of the aztecs there is a great demographic tragedy though demographic makes it sound very cold something because of the concentration of the population because of diseases that they are unfamiliar to, because of the extreme violence of conquest and, and the way those things uh, interact with each other and exacerbate each other. In the Valley of Mexico, you're talking about something like a 90% mortality rate among the indigenous people of that central valley. In other places, it's 50% to 80%, but the devastation in central Mexico is just astonishing. That is devastating, yeah. And Caroline, your your book on Savage Shores, which is very exciting, so January next year. So um, what period does that cover? What time period does that cover? That goes up to the founding of Jamestown. So it's the early period, principally the 16th century, just sneaks up into the beginning of the 17th century. And the reason I'm looking at that period is not just that it hasn't been as much looked at as some other periods, but also that it's a moment when Indigenous power is much more in flux alongside European power than it will be later. Although Indigenous peoples, obviously, in the end, are at a great disadvantage due to disease, due to the colonialism and the extremities of imperial violence, in that early period, they hold quite a lot of weight, too. And this is the, the moment that we think of as the beginning of globalisation, of cosmopolitanism. But we often detach that idea from Indigenous people tra travelling, from Indigenous mobility. We think of Europeans going west, we think of the transatlantic slave trade in enslaved Black African peoples, but we don't think about the thousands of Indigenous people who are transported eastwards at the same time in that early period, not on the scale by any means of the triangle trade later on, absolutely not. But it seems that some of the ships that transport enslaved Africans to the West then transport enslaved indigenous people eastwards. There is a trade in both directions. This is a, a kind of shared, horrifying tragedy. And there, there's actually really fascinating work being done on the, the way in which those experiences entangle and overlap the, the shared experiences of forced bondage and mobility. I'm I'm kind of being careful because I don't want in any way to diminish the story of the incredible horror of the 12 million Africans who are taken west over that period. It becomes industrialised on a scale that is just unimaginable. But in this early period, you have a more balanced interaction in which you not only have enslaved people moving to the east, but you also have people coming as diplomats, you have people coming as members of families, you have 
translators and intermediaries. You have people who are promoting the power of their cultures and their societies. And Europeans are a bit more dependent on those civilizations in the Americas in that very early period than they will be later when they simply tempt to exterminate them. It's a different kind of interaction. I mean, a similar interaction, of course, occurs in, in Africa, where indigenous cultures and in, in the American North. But the period where I started was with the Spanish Empire. Often we think about the British, we start this story with Jamestown, and I wanted to take that story backwards and into the moment where many of these commodities and exchanges start where you have the introduction of chocolate and tobacco, for example, and indigenous people come along with those stories. So the indigenous indigenous lords, Maya lords, are the first people recorded with drinking chocolate in Europe at the Spanish court of Philip II. But when we think about the story of chocolate, you often think about Europeans. I went to a well-known chocolate story, not very far from my home, and their first scene in the, you know, you go through and they have films and displays and so on. And the first film was all about the introduction of chocolate to Europe and indigenous beliefs about chocolate. And it literally said that Cortez introduced chocolate to Europe and told the Pope and the King of Spain about it and they kept it secret. And it's fabrication. <laughs> it's just made up. There is not the slightest evidence for that, not even a tiny bit. And so often indigenous people are written out of these stories, much in much the same way that African agency was written out of stories of the Atlantic until people started recovering those histories of their influence of complex, you know, increasing that complexity of the story. And in, I'm not the first person to do any of this work. I'm not claiming to have discovered a hidden story. People knew about these travellers. The descendants knew about these travellers. Other scholars have written about some of these travellers, but their presence, the fact that some work has been done on this doesn't seem to have shifted our popular perception of this period of history. How many people know that there was Brazilian, probably Tupinamba king at the court of Henry VIII? How many people know that there were tens of thousands of enslaved indigenous people in Spain? How many people know that at the court of Charles V, there were people mocking up human sacrifice to show Europeans what it was like? People don't think of those things. They don't think of Maya lords as being part of the cosmopolitan exchange that brings chocolate or potatoes or beans to Europe. So I wanted to really, I've gone on too long, I realise. No, I no, it's but all I, fascinating. I, 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 this is, I'm trying to summarise the whole book, aren't I? I wanted to engage with that moment when things start to shift and not in a kind of, story of jolly cosmopolitanism, but to show the complexity of that exchange and the place that Indigenous people have in it. And the fact that our world as Europeans has been diverse for, I mean, you could tell the story as far back as the Romans if you wanted to, or the Angles and Saxons and, as immigrants and so on, but, but certainly for at least 500 years, we've been talking about uh, an extremely diverse, complex and interconnected world. This has been such a fascinating and enlightening talk. And I thank you so much. I know you've got a lot on with your, your book coming out soon. And, and I'm just so grateful that you made the time to talk to us about this area that you're obviously very passionate about and you're, you know, sharing your expertise with us. Thank you so much, Caroline. It, I imagine that people listening are just as intrigued by you as I am and, and want to know more about your work. So we know the book's coming out. We need to all go and pre-order that book. I think it's very important. But where else can they find out about you and your work? 
Well, if people Google Caroline Dodds-Pennock, then my uh, work webpage will come up. But by far the easiest place to get in touch with me, to talk to me about my work or hear what I'm doing, is on Twitter, at Caroline Pennock, where my book is my pinned tweet so that my publisher is happy. So, yeah, it, it's it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for thinking about the Aztecs as part of this period. Because, although, of course, calling them Tudors is maybe pushing it, they're very much part of that period of history, and um, that is often forgotten. No, thank you. It's been really fascinating. And you've given me so much to think about, because as you say, often they're like two separate little boxes. And you know, and, and it was that you're talking about things that are happening while Henry VIII is on the throne. So this is just incredible. It's so fascinating. So thank you so much for making the time and for coming on to the podcast. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm-hmm.